0: This morning, we will continue to read concerning the Lord's second return. And um, we will be reading from 1 Thessalonians again, from chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. This this is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Alice. What a great song to sing before we come to the message, Your Word Will Stand When Everything Else Might Fail or Fall Away. The Word of God will stand. The Word of God will still be here. I've thought about before how You know, generations and generations have passed off of this earth, and yet this book is still here. It's kind of interesting. This has been something that's been handed on to generation to generation, even though we disappear, even though we pass away, God's word will stand. So that's where we go this morning. That's what we do at Bethany Church. We open God's word. We believe that God still speaks and that he primarily speaks through his word when we open it and sit under it. As the authoritative word from God. And so we're going to do that today as we continue our series, Living Today While Longing for Tomorrow, a letter to the Thessalonians. Remember, they were a church that was young in their faith. They were persecuted. They were confused. They were very uh, missional outward. They were increasing in their love more and more, as Paul said that a couple times in the letter for them to do, more and more. And they were caring for all the churches around the area of Macedonia and sharing Jesus. They had been encouraged by Paul to walk in a way that pleases God, to walk in a way that pleases him, but they had some problems too. They had problems too, just like we do today. They were, hor- they were worried and filled with anxiety about death. Last week, we looked at the return of Jesus and the encouragement that, that Paul gave to those who'd lost loved ones in the Lord. They saw, in some way were confused and thought their dead loved ones either m- would miss out on the resurrection body or maybe they had missed the second coming altogether and the day of the Lord had kind of come already in some way. Second Thessalonians 2 says that some spirit or some spoken word or perhaps another letter that had Paul's name on it that really wasn't, was forged, had come to them, and it had shaken them up. Paul mentions it in his real second letter. And we were shown last week to walk as those who grieve expectantly with hope, waiting on the Lord's return. Remember, we talked about a reunion that would take place that we will have with Jesus and all those who've gone before us in the Lord. And that brilliant promise of a new physical heaven and earth, remember, heaven is Not the best, it's good, it's better, but it's not the best. The new heaven and new earth are the best, with Jesus and all the saints and and new glorified bodies, that's best, but that's not yet, that's coming. Today we're going to look at the day of the Lord, known throughout the Bible as the day of, of God's coming judgment, coming wrath. When I got up this morning, I thought, I really want to teach on God's wrath this morning, that's what I want to do. Well, the day of the Lord is coming, and the scripture speaks of it, so we need to. However, the experience of those who are children of the day, as Paul calls us, will be entirely different from those who are of the night, Paul calls another group of people. And that's most important to us today. Because if you know Christ, the day of the Lord we're going to talk about today will be a glorious day. But if you don't, this text says sudden destruction. Those are heavy words. So we're going to look at two different experiences of the day of the Lord today and how to live in in light of them. We're going to look at some warnings and some encouragements, actually one warning uh, and two encouragements. So grab your outline if you've got it, have it open there in your Bible 2 to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to look at those warnings and, and, and encouragements today. Let's look at the first warning. The first thing they pull out of this text is this, that God's wrath will come unexpectedly, like a thief, and be in a inescapable, like birth, labor pains. The problem of the Thessalonians, and this is a warning here that Paul gives to them and that I have for us this morning, I have a real warning for us, is our problem too. And it's the question people have been asking for millennia, and the Thessalonians were asking it, and lots of us are asking it today How and when is the world going to end? Don't you want to know that? (laughs) How and when is the world going to end? And every generation has believed they're going to see it in their lifetime, and, and we should at least hope so. We should hope and live expectantly, where I talk about today, as if Christ would return at any time. But our day's not different in this way than the Thessalonians. We want answers too. And it's common throughout history, all of history, when the world sees or a nation sees deterioration or increase in violence or, or strife or war during dark times of history, there's a great interest in what's going to happen and when it's going to happen at the end of time. We might call it prophecy. That skyrockets. Is this the end? Sometimes it feels like it, doesn't it? People even today were feeling that tension and seeing things change and, and, and wondering when and how they were doing the same thing. And Paul had a warning for them. And there's one for us too. And I'm sure you've noticed there is a great market out there for peddling in eschatology. There is. Just do a Google search. Just do a YouTube search. You can find a thousand different voices. And much of it's trying to give those reassurances that Paul addresses here, the when and how questions. Will it be in our lifetime? And at best, a lot of that, and this is a warning morning, as Paul gives this to them, a lot of that, at best, is speculation. How and when it's all going to end. Be careful, Paul says to them, as we're going to see. When you come to eschatology, or you're listening to someone that speaks with such certainty that it paints the speaker as the only one courageous enough to say this truth. Tell it how it is. while Simultaneously holding up other people, maybe views, pastors, churches, politicians, as straw men and women to ridicule. Thessalonians were looking, when? How? Tell us. Give us answers. And we feel the same thing. And that type of es- es- eschatological speculation can be really unhealthy, actually. Because it can breed an arrogance and a pride that divides the church. And I think it actually can take us back to, when we become obsessed with it, that is, an unhealthy, or what was most unhealthy about the fundamentalist movement. It distracts us from the Great Commission and kind of turns it into an us versus them. And so much of that, which is what the Thessalonians were struggling with, so much of that feeds not so much on Jesus... More on news headlines, geopolitical boundaries, and great commission work. Look what Jesus said. He said the exact same thing. Look at Acts 1. So when they come together, they asked him, how and when? How and when, Jesus? Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's the only place in the Bible where times or seasons is used, like in our passage, Jesus said it, or New Testament, that is. He said, they said, Lord, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. He went on, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. As I said, it's the only other place where those two words, times and seasons, are used as Paul used them in our passage when he says, concerning times and seasons, you have no need to have anything written about it. And Jesus says here, and here's the warning He says, don't spend all or even most of your time trying to figure out the how and when. He says that right up top. He says, you know, comparing the headlines to the word, but spend it in the Great Commission work. That's what he says there. He says, spend it in Great Commission work, not in trying to figure out how and when, because he says, that's not for you to know. Now, that doesn't mean we're called to be ignorant, of what's going on in the world. It doesn't mean that. It just means don't be so certain or maybe dogmatic, labeling certain people groups or nations or times and leaders and movements as if we know the times and seasons because Jesus says we don't. It's a warning to be careful. He says it can distract from Great Commission work. Jesus says This is what I want you to be about. I want you to be about the nations, you being a witness to the nations. So there's a warning here Paul gives the Thessalonians, a warning Jesus gave. Paul's kind of repeating that eschatology, that concern about the how and when, can be unhealthy. If our eschatology brings the result is more angst. More restlessness, more polarization, more politicization of the faith, more us versus them, and less great commission work, guess what? It's not healthy. It's not healthy, Paul would say. Jesus says here. If the result is it makes you more pessimistic, thinking that we're living in the worst time there ever was, when there's no way that's even provable. The time of the the Christians and the time of Rome was pretty bad, it's not healthy. If the result makes you withdraw from culture, withdraw from your neighbor, pull up the drawbridges at the church with indifference because the time is short, it's not healthy. Robin remembers getting flyers, she sat on her car outside her church when she was young in the 80s that said, Jesus is coming on October 26th. She was not happy because her birthday was the 30th. And so she always used that verse, and sometimes I think we do too, you know, if nobody knows the hour, we can say it's the hour, and for sure he won't come. I remember as a kid thinking that, you know, wanting to have certain things happen in my life, like get married and um, all that comes with that before Jesus comes back. I can remember that, thinking that. (laughs) Yeah. If your eschatology doesn't make you more like Jesus or make you gentler more loving, more ready to share the gospel, make you live more faithfully sober and awake, then what's it for? We have to ask ourselves that question. But it's popular. Draws a huge crowd. What's it for? A lot of you remember the book, How Lindsay's Late Great Planet Earth. Where is that book now? Or how about the left-behind novels? Where are they? I can tell you, they're in the dollar bin at Goodwill. That's where they are right now. There's thousands of them out there. Why do we crave that so much, do you think? I do too. Why do we crave that so much? Why does each generation need to get that how and when and try to prove that they will be the ones? I know some of that, some of it, I want to be fair, is really well-intentioned a desire to understand the Bible, a desire to understand prophetic literature in it. I know some of it's really good. I know some of it's to spur us on to evangelism because we don't know when Jesus will return and it could be any moment. I know some of it's driven by a real love of Jesus and a hope that he comes soon. But some of it, some of that out there and some of that in our heart, that desire, is actually heart issues. Fear, fear of the unknown, Fear of being left out of the inner circle that might know something. Pride of knowledge that categorizes everyone into neat little groups. There's some fear there, too, in some of our eschatology. And some of it's just a faulty view, as the Thessalonians had. They thought the answer for their life was to know the answer of the when and how. They thought if we could just know the times and seasons, Paul, we would wake up, we would love more and more. We would live more boldly and more spiritually minded. One commentator said, being spiritually prepared for the return of Christ does not involve date setting, clock watching, or sign seeking. God has not chosen to reveal the specific time of end time events so that all believers will live in anticipation of them. Anticipation. Paul affirms this in this passage and says, yeah, to know the times and seasons, actually the opposite is actually true. The Thessalonians thought that was the right solution to know the answer when Christ would return, but Paul says in verse 1, look down there, you don't need to know that. It's the wrong solution. The right solution, he's been saying all throughout this letter, is to live in light of the information you do have and that God has intended for you to know. You know what you need to know, he says, that the day of the Lord will come like two things, two uh, similes he has there for us, similes, uh, like a thief in the night and like labor pains. It's a solemn warning. The day of the Lord throughout Scripture has represented the time of God's judgment on humanity. The Old Testament, it was spoken of a, a, as a dark time, dark and light. Here you ever notice that, all throughout the Bible, those images of dark and light and the metaphor and what they represent has been spoken of throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was spoken as a very dark time and horrible time for those who face God's judgment. I think of the time change. We're all going to be shocked tonight, right, at 4.30 when it's like, it's dark already. You know, we go to work in the dark, come home from work in the dark. We're coming into the season of darkness, aren't we, for the Northwest, It's dark. That image is there in the Bible as Amos said, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. There's that phrase. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. How about that? (laughs) Or went into the house and he leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Oh, they described it as something so dark in the Old Testament, so somber, so serious. I mean, it's it's humorous in one sense, but you're running from a lion and around the corner, a grizzly bear grabs you. It's kind of humorous, but also very serious. And as we get to the New Testament, we get even more information as Acts 17. And one of the sermons there, uh, Peter says, excuse me, Paul says, he has fixed a day. A day, there it is, the day of the Lord. He's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. Who's that? And of this, he's given the assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. The one resurrected from the dead will be the one to judge all humanity. Day of the Lord on that day, that fixed day. The Lord knows that day. It is fixed. There is a time and season. We just don't know it. The day of the Lord is a sobering warning for all of us. It's solemn. He says he's provided the Thessalonians with enough knowledge to know that the day of the Lord will come with God's severest judgment on the ungodly, on those who haven't trusted Christ, like a thief and like labor pains. What are these illustrations? Why are they there? Why does he liken it to a thief or to labor pains? Both of these illustrations are there to point us to the, the suddenness the oncoming, the quick suddenness of Christ's judgment. No one expects a thief, do they? If they would, Scripture says in other places, what? You'd stay awake and, and make, it, make sure the thief couldn't get in. No one expects a thief to come. When do they come usually? At night. And do they send you a little uh, email or text? I'll be there tonight. No, there's no warning, right? There's no warning from a thief. And, and Paul says here in Thessalonians, they're gonna be in the house, and they're going to be thinking and saying, as verse 3 says, peace and security. And everything's all good. Similar to Jesus' words, and, and then when Paul says, excuse me, destruction will come expect, unexpectedly like a thief, Jesus said something in Matthew similar. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. It's like, Paul, peace Security, life was just, you know, fantastic. No worries, no problems, things are are good. Until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware, surprised, unexpecting, until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Like a thief in the night, It'll be unexpected. Most people won't be thinking about it. Life will be great and grand and peace and security and eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. It just means normal life is going on. But like a flood, the Lord will come. But also like labor pains, which come unexpectedly too, sometimes later than some women are hoping, some of those late uh, births, late due dates and going past, but they come unexpectedly, but they're also unavoidable labor pains. In our day and age with modern medicine, we can't quite, at least I would imagine for women, maybe relate as much as those in pre-epidural days and actually in days when death was common in childbirth too. Thank the Lord we live in an era that lessens some of those birth pangs. Not entirely, I know. But it's unavoidable, those birth pains. It's unavoidable. So put them together. What we get then with a thief and and birth pains is a somber warning of judgment that will come without warning and from which there'll be no escape. There'll be nowhere to go like a flood that would cover the earth. Nowhere to hide. And of course, the Thessalonian Christians, they would be surprised by that day too. They didn't know it, but not with the result, the same result. They won't face the sudden destruction. The day to them won't be like a thief breaking in. Of course, it would surprise because... We don't know the day or hour, but not surprised like a thief. The topic of God's judgment is not very popular, is it? <laughs> it's not a popular topic today. It's not easy to talk about. But do you know what's really interesting? It's not, it's not always been like this. That's actually a relatively new state of things. Uh, in, in ancient times and history... Um, In ancient times, it was just a given. I mean, you wouldn't even find anybody that would question this, that there was a God who would judge. You would not find, I mean, anybody on the earth, we're talking pre-1700s, but for most of history, nobody would have questioned this. There was a transcendent spiritual order that everyone believed in. It was maybe invisible and spiritual, but there was a transcendent moral reality that if you went against it, it'd be akin to like physically putting your hand in a fire, right? That would hurt, wouldn't it? So everybody at all times believed that to go against this transcendent moral order, whatever it was, and there were different gods, right, of course, and religions, would be as, as bad as physically getting burned. They believed it was there. And then our job then, what it meant to be a human in that worldview a long time ago, our job, if there was a reality outside of ourselves, our job was to form ourselves to that reality. That's the way everybody viewed the world until our really time of, of you know, I'm thinking of the history of America, 1700s. And not just here around the world, that changed. But our job was to form our life to that reality by knowledge and self-discipline and, and the idea of cultivating virtues of humility and wisdom and courage. There was a transcendent reality, And human beings didn't create it. Their job was to form themselves to it. That's how everybody viewed the world. But all of a sudden, something kind of flipped through the 1700s and days of enlightenment and rationalism. That This got reversed to where we are today. Today, The only world is really the natural world. Or maybe, you know, somebody's like, oh, there's some spiritual. I believe there's a God or something spiritual. But really what's highlighted is the natural, the physical, the material. And it's ours to do with what we please. Do you see that? Do you sense that? It's the water we've grown up in. So we maybe, you know, boiling the frog in the the kettle might be hard to see. But today, nature's there for us to do with what we please. We bend it to our reality. We fit it to our desires. And so things like technique and efficiency and management and technology are all to harness this world for our use. C.S. Lewis documented this so well in that really hard little book, Abolition of Man. But that's the way, it would, nobody would have questioned this. And so the, out, the, the results of that is an, an idea of an outside reality today an outside God who would hold you accountable for what you've done is like absurd to people because we've just changed the entire way we view the world. It's understandable why it's so hard in our culture to believe in. Ours is a day of personal rights and abilities to control the material world. So aren't we shocked when we're at the doctor and there's no medical solution for something? We're absolutely shocked Most of us, because we feel like we should be able to harness the world and control it with a bit of science and medicine. Not that those things are bad, they're great. But we're surprised when there's not an answer for something. We're shocked. And then we're shocked when we hear that there's a day of the Lord. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here and you're like, ah, yeah, that's just a foreign concept to me. The day of the Lord? But I want to actually show you for a minute that you can't actually get away from that concept, and each and every one of us lives as if it was true, that a day of the Lord is coming. You know, a lot of people, even some Christians, when we think of God as being angry, how do you think of that? What do you think of, how do you think of God's anger or his wrath? A lot of times I think we think of it more like our anger and our wrath because that's what we're most familiar with that can be capricious, explosive Power-seeking, maybe like a toddler whose toy was taken. Ever seen that? Anger, wrath. Here's what I want us to see as we define God's wrath. It's a sub-point there. God's wrath is not a cranky outburst. His wrath is not a cranky outburst, but more described and akin to a settled, loving opposition to sin. The Christian God of the Bible is both loving and just. Both loving and just simultaneously. Just means that he will hold all wrongdoers accountable and make things right. But what if his love and wrath were somewhat related? What if his love and wrath were actually related in some way? And what if maybe the idea of his wrath even flowed from his love? Have you ever thought about that? Or thought about it that way? What if God's wrath at the day of the Lord was not an explosive outburst of anger, but a settled anger, a disposition against sin because he's holy and then therefore has to respond that way? There's a quote in the the book Reason for God by a lady named Becky Pippert. I love this quote, and it, it helps us thinking about the idea of God's anger and wrath, and it's helpful. And it actually, I think, shows us we all believe in a good, healthy, righteous anger. She said this, she said, think how we feel when we see, when someone we see, excuse me, I have it wrong, I'm going to read it up here. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards a stranger? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but it's his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. What is she saying? She's saying that God is so good, he is holy in his character, and he's so committed to his goodness, he's so committed to justice and rightness that the Bible calls holiness, that he can do no other than be against evil and sin. It's his very nature. So he's just. And yet at the same time, he loves his creation and humanity so much that he will at at some point hold people accountable for evil. His wrath flows from his love and holiness. It's not an explosive outburst. It's just the nature of his character and who he is. To be careful, though, it's not just an abstract response to evil, that he's just in some general sense angry with evil. The Bible very specifically speaks of God's wrath coming on real people for real sins. So it's not just in some general sense. I mean, can you imagine that? Imagine if it was just in the abstract that God was angry at evil. I'm just so angry that evil got my earth and it's destroying people and humanity and it's wrecked our relationship. And he just left it in the abstract. Some people say, I just like to think of a God who's loving, not wrathful. But would a God who's loving look at the atrocities of this world and the evil of this world and just dismiss it? Real evil done by real people, by us, and just kind of shrug his shoulders in difference oh, well, it's just a wash. Or just kind of tussle us on the head and give us a kick in the pants and go, you guys tried, I know you tried, but it didn't go so well. I mean, would that be a God worthy of your worship? I don't think so. Would that be a loving God? With, you think of the individual things of evil that have been done in our world, if he just went, eh, who cares, you know? If he was just indifferent, that would not be a loving God, and it wouldn't be a God worthy of your worship. No, he's angry at the cancer plaguing his creation, sin. Just like, as Piper kind of said, you get angry when someone you love, you see a family member destroying themselves. It's a righteous anger. It's not like our explosive anger. He is a God that will bring justice for wrongs doing wrongdoings. It's not the opposite of love. It flows from his love, and his anger is against sin and sinners. We're not different, are we? You're not different when a wrong is done to yourself or somebody you know. In fact, a lot of us have a real strong sense of justice. We've got a whole court and legal system to make sure that when wrong is done, someone pays for it. So why would it be any different with God? It's not. Why would God be any different? Can you imagine if he was indifferent? So we have a big problem then. God is just, and he has every right to punish evil in his world, and Paul's saying a day will come like a thief, like labor pains, when he will, and we've all done evil, and that day's coming at any moment, we've got a big problem. It's a somber warning. We need a word of encouragement, so let's look at it in number two. We will, you will escape God's wrath through Jesus, the judge who was judged. Paul begins to talk about two different groups of people, those who are of the dark and asleep or drunk, he uses in verses four through seven, those word uh, word groups, those kind of in a stupor, the ones saying peace and security and surprised and overwhelmed by the flood that gets them by the thief. And then there's this other group who are of the light, the day, sober and awake. And what he reminds them about is that this day is, isn't going to surprise you as the same way if you're in Christ. Look at verses four and five with me. But you're not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. He says, everything you need to know about Jesus is coming, you know. And when he does, verse nine through 10, look down to those, say, for God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through Jesus, our our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. He says, you will be saved. You will escape. To think of it as a flood coming puts that into reality, that idea of escaping a massive flood. We've all seen videos of tsunamis and great floods and the destruction or think of the hurricane that just went through Florida, the video you saw of it just tearing things apart. You will escape, Paul says. You will escape. It's a stark contrast between those who will be caught off guard and face the judgment and be separated from God forever, which is what that really is, and those who live in the light of God, salvation in Christ. Jesus, through John's gospel, especially in the first three chapters, is talked about beautifully like the light of a world, the world. Here's some some verses about it. In him was life, that's Jesus. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In John 3, that Nicodemus exchange between Jesus and Nicodemus, whoever believes in him, that's the light, that's Jesus, is not condemned. There's judgment. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Jesus at his coming, who really kind of began to usher in this day of the Lord. It hasn't culminated yet, but he's come. The kingdom has started in some sense. The the, the, the end times have begun in some sense. We are in the last days. But he began this in his death and his resurrection. He was the one who brought light and brings light to the world. It's the gospel. It's him himself. For us, he's the light that shines in a dark world. And as, as he has begun in some beginning sense the kingdom, and those who don't believe in some sense already stand are under, some, under some condemnation. You're either under it or you're not. You're either waiting to get surprised by the flood or you're in Christ. The separating of the people of the light and dark, John seems to be saying in Jesus' words, has begun now in some sense. But here's the beautiful truth of the gospel. God's wrath and anger, it's not like um, the dark side of the force of Star Wars. It's not like the dark side of God's character that he's embarrassed about or that he just can't help like an explosive toddler. Think about it. Without God's anger at sin and his love for humanity, we wouldn't have the cross. We wouldn't have the gospel without both of those things. When Jesus, the judge, who we read from Acts, when Jesus, the judge, was judged for us. Paul started this letter with these words, called Jesus the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. The judge was judged. It was Romans 3 that made this click for me. I think it was in my 20s when it kind of clicked for me. This idea of God's holiness and wrath and the idea of his love and how those things meet up at the cross. Romans 3 says this, a few verses from it. You've heard these verses maybe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've got, it means we've got a problem, right? <laughs> the day of the Lord's coming, like a flood, like a storm. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified, that kind of means, oh, made righteous, made right with God. They're justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a big word, propitiation by his blood, I'll explain it in a minute. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness, his justice at the present time. So he could be two things at once. Just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's where the dilemma is solved. That God is holy and just and will come in judgment. And yet he loves his people and his creation a lot. Here's where the dilemma is solved. And here's where it clicked for me when I saw those two words in my 20s. Just and the justifier. Wrath must come, Paul's saying here. We all fall short of the glory of God. God is just and, he, and evil must be held accountable, he says. Once evil entered the world as a holy God, he had to be opposed to it or he wouldn't be a good loving God who deserves our worship. But he loves us and so the one who is just becomes the justifier the one who makes us right with God by taking Jesus, taking the wrath for God's people, we escape, as Paul says in Thessalonians, God's wrath so that God doesn't have to be uh, double-minded or schizophrenic. He can be both just and justifier, save people by being and staying true to his character of holiness at the same time. Just and the justifier. How does he do that? It's that big word propitiation. It means the judge was judged. Um, I think I've explained it this way before. It's helpful, I think, analogy. Think of taking a sponge you washed your car with or your windows. And it's a sponge that, what does it do? It soaks up? Yeah, good. Some, somebody's still there. It soaks up water. Well, imagine that water was like the wrath of God. Jesus, like that sponge, absorbed it, took it on as if you dunked it in that bucket of wrath, took it on, absorbed it, did away with it, appeased it, however you want to say it, for you. So if he's already soaked it up for you, is he ever going to give it to you? No. 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 If he soaked it up for you, you will escape, Paul says. How does he undo? Would he wring it out a little bit, what Jesus had done on on top of you? No. He absorbed it. That's that big word, propitiation. It means like a sponge that soaked it up. So God remains just and doesn't excuse sin. He deals with it at the cross and justifies. So that when you place your faith in Jesus... You're given Jesus' righteousness. He soaked up the wrath. He pours on you his goodness. So this eschatology, this looking at Christ's coming should do what? Encourage us and lead us in the here and now to live differently. If you're gonna escape the wrath of God, if you're in Christ, how should we live? It's our final encouragement. We're to live, Paul says in this passage, as children of light, And day, I'm going to quickly just unpack these three applications the passage has for us on how to live in light of these truths. This is the more and more. What should we be like? How should we live more and more? Well, first, be sober and awake. The Thessalonians were in danger of letting their end time obsession and confusion distract them from the time still remaining in front of them and the work still to do. We aren't, Paul describes as those who live in a blissful ignorance of sleep. You know these things, and if you didn't, now you do. So you have some responsibility to do something with it, now that you know. We don't live in blissful ignorance of sleep, but we live as those who know the alarm bell has been sounded, that judgment is coming. And our hope would be that we would want others to escape that end too. Others to escape that flood as Jesus described it that hurricane, however that's gonna look. We would want others to, ex- to escape that coming judgment. We weren't saved to lounge back, right, on the recliner of life and entertain ourselves to death. No, we were saved to be about the master's work and Jesus likens uh, uh, his coming to a master who went on a journey and left his servants in charge. He says this in the Gospel of Mark, therefore stay awake, it's the same language as go just Paul. Be awake, be sober. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. It's a warning. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Live with daytime behavior. Take your faith seriously, in other words, Paul is saying. Jesus is saying here, Take the discipleship of yourself and others in the church with absolute utmost seriousness. He's saying, stay awake. You don't know when the Master's coming. Do you really want to be asleep when he comes back? Take the peril of the lost and the coming destruction seriously. Why? Because it is really a battle. It is a battle. Second thing, Paul encourages us how to live. Be armed with the gospel. So be sober, be awake, be investing in your own spiritual life and the lives of others, whether they're lost or they know Jesus, and do it by being armed with the gospel. In verse 80, he tells them, arm up with the gospel. He uses those trio of words found all over the New Testament. Faith, love, and hope. He says, remember the gospel. He says, you've been destined for this in verse nine to escape the wrath, which at the very least means God purposed your salvation in some way. At the very least, we'd all have to agree on that, that he planned it and accomplished it so you as an individual, you can live with him, verse 10 says. He destined it. He worked very personally for you if you've trusted Christ today. And he's given us this armor of God that sounds like Ephesians 6, doesn't it? to battle against the discouragements of life, the doubt of life, the distractions of life, of suffering, of loss, of grief and sin. The armor covers two parts here in the text, the heart and the head. Faith and love that protect the heart and hope as the helmet on the head. Faith gives us a confidence in his return, doesn't it? We have faith he's returning. We believe that he promised by faith Love is our loyalty to him. Faith, love, and hope. Love is our loyalty to him and doing what he loves shows our love for him. And then hope gives us that security to trust God's promises. We hope in them. And we use the gospel, he says, arm up with this, with faith, with love, and hope. Arm up with it. Be ready for this spiritual battle with it. And do so by encouraging one another. It's our final. Encourage one another. He says, says, I know you're doing this, but I want you to do it more. Our final verse there. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you're doing. He must be saying, do so more. So are you in some sort of discipling relationship in our church? Are you prone to speak hopeful words to each other of Jesus' coming? More and so and more, the letter says. If not... Listen to God's warnings. Listen to Paul's warnings. Be sober and awake. And I know our world can be tough. We know it can be in an unfriendly place, a place of grief and hurt and sorrow. We know discouragement can come really easily, can't it? Some of you are discouraged today. Especially as you think about election week. The discourages that come with leaders coming and leaders going and policies changing and the, the language parties are using to disparage and ridicule each other. This could be a really discouraging week. But from start to finish, this letter has been about hope in Jesus. That's our hope hope in Jesus. And the encouragement that that gives us, the hope that he's coming again. And that's what the table's going to do today. That's what the table shows us. It's gonna be a visual taste reminder of faith, hope, and love. We are going to arm up together as we take. As we take the elements and discuss the gospel again, we're gonna put on that helmet of of hope and the breastplate of faith and love. We'll be practicing encouraging each other, one another, today. So our worship team is gonna get ready. They're gonna come up. And I want you just to encourage your own heart for a minute. We all have time to encourage each other out there and talk out there. But I want you to encourage yourself in your heart right now. Take a moment.